You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Thanks, Nick, for that introduction. It is true, I am in Urbana, and while most people are out there hoarding things like toilet paper and eggs, here in Urbana we're hoarding things like granola, and old issues of the Atlantic. For eggs, we've just been going around to our neighbor's house and stealing them from chicken coops in their front yard. Now, as you may guess, I'm alone in my room recording by myself, and I have no idea how hard you all are LOLing at that last joke. But it got me thinking, I really wish I just had a way to transport you all here to be with me, to cheer me on, and heckle me like we normally would on a Sunday morning. Like, I wish I had a button I could press and just hear you all applaud. (gasps) Oh my gosh, look at that, an instant congregation. I can't believe it, it's it's a miracle. (gasps) Well, I got this great remote from my friend and coworker, Susie Miller. She gave it to me on March 12th, and we had no idea that it would be the last time we saw each other in person. But God's timing is pretty incredible, right? And he knew, he knew I would need this remote to keep me going, and he led Susie to buy it for me. I'm not sure how many of you believe in the providence of God, but man, this cannot be a coincidence. Can I get an amen? Yeah, awesome. It goes on for a little long, right? Okay, just one more. All right, all right. I won't use this anymore, I promise. As Nick mentioned, we are in the midst of Lent, and we are actually coming to the end of the season, entering a time in the Christian calendar called Holy Week. Today is the first day of Holy Week, and it's called Palm Sunday. It is a reference to when Jesus triumphantly entered the city of Jerusalem, and as he did that, a crowd formed around him, and they began to lay their coats and palm branches in the streets as he proceeded on a donkey. They were doing this to show him honor and respect, and it truly was a triumphant moment. But as Holy Week moves along, the tone will shift from triumph to sorrow. And as many of you know, this Friday is called Good Friday, and it commemorates and memorializes the death of Jesus on the cross. The same crowd that cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, will cry out, crucify him. Following his death on the cross, Jesus' body was laid in a tomb, and it rested there through the weekend. This Saturday, April 11th, we will mark the end of Lent. And we will begin to look forward to that glorious morning, Resurrection Sunday. For those of you that are just joining us, our church has been walking through a four-week series on the life and death of John the Baptist. And we've been using this series as a roadmap through Lent. John's story follows the arc of Lent by highlighting Jesus as an unconventional king. Jesus was triumphant not by military victory, but by dying for his people's sins and rising from the dead. Even the low points of John's life showcase Jesus as the gentle and strong king 
who will suffer at the hand of an earthly power only to upend it in resurrection. As John prepared the way for Jesus, we want to invite you and challenge you this final week of Lent to prepare your heart for Easter. Full disclosure, John's story is a tragedy. And with today being the last sermon, we are going to feel full on the sadness and the weight of the devastating end of John's life. This sermon is not going to be warm and fuzzy. And there is part of me that is really sad about it. I know many of you are already struggling to stay positive in face of the global trial that is coronavirus. And I'm worried that by spending time dwelling on the death of John, I'm just going to further dig you into the pit. But take heart in this. I do believe that while John's story ends tragically, the legacy he leaves is a triumphant one. And we'll see that even though he loses his life, he is commemorated as one of the greatest men to ever have lived. So with that in mind, would you please walk with me down this sad road? One highlight of this series is that we've been looking through John's story via the lens of all four gospel writers. In week one, Pastor Nick taught us from the Gospel of Matthew. In week two, I was able to share with you all from the Gospel of John. And last week, Dr. Kate Norcross preached from the Gospel of Luke as she walked us through John's time in prison. This week, I'll be looking at the end of John's story through the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels, and it is the most efficient in how it tells its story. It doesn't waste time with much authorial commentary or flowery language. Rather, Mark's gospel gets right to the point. It's a gospel of action. It doesn't even include the birth of John or Jesus because it just wants to get right to when they were doing ministry. In its brevity, however, Mark's gospel is deeply concerned with John the Baptist. His book begins with John appearing in the wilderness as an adult, And John is preparing the way for Jesus. John launches the book of Mark as he launches Jesus into ministry by baptizing his divine cousin in the Jordan River. The attention that Mark gives to John shows the importance of his role as a forerunner to Jesus. John's whole life was devoted to pointing people to Christ and to the Heavenly Father. And we saw that through the ups and the downs of his life, he stayed faithful to that. In his brevity, Mark's gospel is also going to invest a portion of its text to show us how John died. It's significant, and I believe it shows that we should also be investing some time into thinking and reflecting about how John the Baptist died. And that even in his death, he still was a forerunner to the Savior, Jesus Christ, his beloved cousin. During our countdown timer, we encourage you all to grab a physical Bible. As you know, with us usually meeting in a lecture hall on on campus, we don't have a pew. We don't have pew Bibles. We We don't have those for you to leaf through. So I wanted to capitalize on this unique moment and encourage you all to, to grab a physical Bible at home. Reach into that virtual pew and grab it. And I would love for you to read along with me from the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. And if you don't have one handy, 
I would encourage you to go grab a Bible right now. You can miss the next 30 seconds. It's fine. If you don't own a physical Bible, I would encourage you to pull the passage up on an app on a second device. Our story is going to be found in the sixth chapter of Mark, and it's going to begin at verse 14, but our focus is going to be on verses 21 through 29. As you're turning to the page, I need to give you background on three characters that we're going to see in this story. The first character is obviously John the Baptist. And while John is a major part of the story, he won't make a physical appearance. The reason for that is because John is currently imprisoned in jail. John had been unjustly incarcerated by a local governmental leader named Herod Antipas. Now Herod Antipas is not to be confused with the other Herod, Herod the Great. That Herod is featured prominently in the Christmas story. But by the time this story takes place, that Herod would have already passed away. The Herod we're talking about today is Herod the Great's son. So to avoid confusion, I'm just going to call him Antipas. Antipas was one of four tetrarchs, so he was basically one quarter of a king. Now you may be wondering what a tetrarch is, so let me explain. Before I do that, I just need to mention, um, for those of you keeping score at home, since December 2018, I've been publicly committed to showing you all at least one map during my Sunday sermons. I call this a map streak. I imagine many of you thought COVID-19 was going to break my map streak, and you, my friend, would be wrong. I'm not going to let this virus get in the way of you appreciating biblical geography. And to do that, I'm going to use the, the power of PowerPoint to show you all a map and explain what a tetrarch is. So I'm going to use the power of my arm to point at this map. Or is this side better? Let's do this side, shall we? All right, this is ancient... Israel, Judea, back in God and Jesus' time. So, here's what happened. Uh, Herod the Great, when he died, he basically left a will with his final wishes. And he asked that his kingdom would be divided into four parts. And he wanted these four parts to be led by his three sons and his sister. So his one son, Philip, he got this area up here to the northeast. A lot of it's off the map. Uh, his other son, Archelaus, got this area right here. And parts of this area he also bequeathed to his sister Salome, Aunt Sally. Now, Aunt Sally's area gets gobbled up by Archelaus's over time, and then uh, Rome kind of takes over Ar Archelaus's area eventually. But what we're concerned about is the parts in green, okay? These are the parts that Herod Antipas ruled over. And if you notice, what important city is caught up in the region Herod rules? Galilee. This is the area where John and Jesus were doing ministry. And this is where Herod would have had authority. So Antipas was one-fourth of a king. And the areas where he ruled are the areas where John and Jesus were ministering. 
So when you think of Antipas, you have to think of him as a very powerful and wealthy governor. He was a ruler and he had dominion over much land. Antipas then, let me click off my PowerPoint. He was married to a lady named Herodias. Now this is where things are going to get really interesting. Herodias was the ex-wife of Philip, Antipas' brother. She left her husband Philip to marry her brother-in-law. This was a bold move on their part. According to the Gospel of Mark, we don't know much about Herodias. Other than this, she was not a fan of John the Baptist. The reason for that is because John had called out Antipas for breaking God's law by marrying his brother's wife. Being called out for their sin did not sit well with Herodias. And Mark vividly describes her nursing a grudge against John. Her grudge was like a little baby that she kept feeding until it got bigger and bigger and to the point where she could not contain it. This grudge compels her to convince her husband Antipas to put John in jail. Herodias' ultimate desire was for John to be put to death, but Antipas couldn't do it. You see, he was afraid of John. In verse 20, we're told, Antipas feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. To say the least, things between Antipas, Herodias, and John the Baptist were complicated. Antipas didn't mind John as much as Herodias did. And Mark even tells us Antipas found John to be enjoyable to listen to. Even if at times Antipas found John to be perplexing and puzzling. However, Herod's bemused admiration of John, combined with his fear over how John's followers may react at his execution, this is what motivates Antipas to not put John to death. Even though his wife really wanted him to. Rather, Antipas keeps John safe by keeping him in prison. So that's how John ended up in jail. He didn't do anything wrong besides offending the wrong person. A person in power, powerful enough to unjustly take away his rights and his liberty. So that's the scene for the remainder of today's story. Let me pull my PowerPoint back up and show you guys that according to Josephus, an ancient historian, our story is going to be taking place down here in a, in a city called Macarus, where they would have had a, a kind of fortified area where he would live and, and do his work, and that's where the prison would be. So we're moving um, southeast for this story near the Dead Sea. If you guys want to look to verse 21... We're going to jump into our story and see what happens with Herod and Herodias. Mark 6, verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give to you, up to half my kingdom. 
Now a new character is introduced to us, Herod's stepdaughter. She is unnamed in this story, but other sources tell us that her name was also Salome. She would have been the daughter of Herodias, and she was a skilled dancer. So she performed in honor of her stepfather's birthday. Now, we need to fully appreciate this scene, right? And we have to think through what would have been running through Antipas's mind as his stepdaughter danced. Antipas was surrounded by people from the upper echelon of society, people that he wanted to impress. It's also important to remember that even though he was a king per se, his position was not very secure. He was allowed to rule by the reigning Roman Empire, but that wasn't a guarantee for his whole life. Backstabbing and betrayal was commonplace. So a tetrarch would have always been trying to curry favor with people around them as a way to self-protect. In the midst of this party then, Herod Antipas finds himself so delighted by his stepdaughter's dance that he wants to show off to his crowd. And he makes an audacious promise to her. And he doesn't do it emptily. He does it with an oath. Now we can imagine that people may have laughed at the notion of how grandiose this oath was. But the young girl did not. She slips away and she consults with her mother, Herodias. And we have to remember, Herodias has been still nursing the grudge against John and trying to find a way to get him killed. Our story continues in verse 24. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now I can imagine that once she proclaimed her request, there was probably a stunned silence in the room. Can you picture it? This young girl requesting from the king something so brutal and gruesome. There might have been a few awkward chuckles. Maybe some people began to nudge each other. Needless to say, the room was growing tense with, with the passing silence. As Antipas mulled over his response, Mark tells us that he grows visibly uncomfortable. Verse 26, the king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. Antipas had painted himself into a corner. As we learned earlier, he did not want to kill John, but he also couldn't embarrass himself in front of his guests. As well, he had made that public oath in front of all these leading officials and military members. He couldn't back down from it. They may perceive him as weak. They may perceive him as a man who would not keep his word. Antipas chooses his own reputation over the life of an innocent man. And he summons for his execution. Verse 27. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. 
John's story ends abruptly. It ends tragically. It's horribly upsetting. As we saw last week with Kate's sermon, John's life did not go the way he expected. And today we see his life come to an end in a way that is so unjust and so disgusting. It is so unfair what happened to John. Control over his life was stripped away from him. He was unjustly imprisoned, and he was executed without a jury or a trial or any due process. He was killed at the whims of an egotistical and aloof king and at the hands of of an angry and embittered queen. Today's story was about John the Baptist, but it breaks my heart that we only get a chance to behold him under the gruesome circumstance of his head being presented on a platter. Today's story makes me sick to my stomach. It's heartbreaking. It's infuriating. It's, it's sad. And for many of us watching today, John's story does not fit the American Christian narrative. And this is a narrative many of us have become accustomed to. Unfortunately, in the States, we've been raised on a religion that is about prosperity and victory and winning. But when we look at John, we don't see any of that. We see a poor, imprisoned loser. A man that mainstream American society would readily reject. He's not the kind of guy that we would put up on a video on Sunday morning. He wore crazy clothes. He ate bugs, he lived in the wild, and he got arrested for mouthing off to a politician. John does not fit the mold of contemporary Christianity. You may be asking then, why why have we invested four weeks of our time into this man? This guy who was for all intents and purposes a failure. We find our reason in Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus proclaims, Of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus believed that John the Baptist was great. And it's here that we find a conflict. From the American paradigm, John is not great. He is a failure. But from the kingdom of heaven and the paradigm of Jesus, John is great. So, Whose worldview are we going to choose? I think we should go with Jesus. John's greatness and his example to us isn't found in his material successes. The greatness of John is found in his faithfulness to proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And he did this even in the face of a corrupt and increasingly wicked government. John proclaims Jesus as savior of the world from a prison cell, as he wrestles with doubt and fear, and he proclaims Jesus as savior of the world as he baptizes Jesus, even though he did not feel worthy to do the baptizing. We will never know for certain, but I believe that before he was beheaded, John's final words would have been proclaiming Jesus as the savior of the world, the Messiah of God's people.
How then can we be like John? It's going to be different for all of us, but I think a starting point is to examine the man's fidelity to Jesus and let that inspire you. Many of us are going to face hardship and trials. We may face scorn and judgment because of our allegiance to Christ, but I would encourage you to hold fast and to not lose heart. When your life feels out of control and you feel like giving up on Christianity, let John's story re-envision you, renew you, and embolden you to stay connected to the vine of Christ. Being a Christian is hard, and John the Baptist's story shows us that. But John the Baptist never gave up. He never quit, and he stays faithful to the very end. My prayer for us all in our life is that we would not be deceived into thinking that being followers of Jesus means that our life will be easy. John's story tells us the opposite, that following Jesus will be hard, that it will be difficult, and for some of us, our lives may end tragically. But we know that it's worth it. And we know that John's reward wasn't to be found on this temporal planet, but it was to be found in his identity being reaffirmed by Jesus. Jesus knew who John truly was. Jesus knew that John was great, and he told him this. He proclaimed it to the world. And John would take comfort in Jesus' words. John would take comfort in his identity in Christ. And I hope that you will do the same. John's victory was not found in his life being awesome and easy and hashtag blessed. But rather, his victory was found in him pointing to the cross until he could point no more. This whole series we've been telling you that John was a forerunner to Jesus. John was born before Jesus, he started a ministry before Jesus, and he was doing baptisms before Jesus. Tragically, then, John was also a forerunner to Jesus in death. John died at the hands of Herod Antipas, the tetrarch of the region of Galilee. And we will come to see that this very same leader will have a role in the eventual crucifixion of Jesus. In the same way that Antipas robs John of his dignity, he will mock and jeer and make fun of Jesus to his face before handing him back to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. John's death would have been a sobering moment for Jesus, and he withdrew to be alone after he found out. But we can only imagine that in his grief, Jesus would have felt a fresh sense of motivation to make his journey to the cross so that John's death would not be in vain. Align our life this Holy Week. Let us come alongside Jesus as he makes his journey to the cross. And let us prepare our hearts to mourn the tragic death of our Savior. Today's sermon ends on a sad note, but take heart because next week when we gather, we will be rejoicing in resurrection and we will be reveling in the supremacy of Christ Jesus. Until then, let us grieve the loss of the great man, John the Baptist, and let us rejoice in knowing 
that he was a man who was fully devoted to pointing to Christ through his whole life. John knew that Jesus was a savior of the world and he proclaimed it. Let's be like John and proclaim that same truth. I'm going to pray and then we're going to rejoin Kate for one more song of worship as we revel in the power of the cross. Would you pray with me?